0: Maybe wishfully thinking, I feel a slight hint of fall out here on the back porch, but it's probably a fig Newton in my imagination. But we can hope and pray nonetheless. First football game this Saturday, it seems like it's about that time. Hey, this morning we are uh, representing this mug, this has the numbers 11. So it's a uh, Jewish delicatessen in Chicago, the pastoral team had an opportunity to eat there many moons ago. We were there for the gospel coalition conference and seemed like an appropriate time uh, to bring it out since I'm running out of mugs quickly. But will I have enough to make it to the end of Revelation? I think it's very possible. Okay, we're in Revelation chapter 14. Let me read our short passage this morning, pray, and let's dive in. Revelation 14 beginning at verse 1. Then I looked, and on his father's had his name. Let's start that over. <laughs> okay, sorry, blooper reel. Revelation 14:1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. Are blameless Heavenly Father um, we pray that you would encourage our hearts here this morning as we hear and learn about just the special redemptive love you have for your people just the kind merciful gracious care you've extended to us while we did not deserve it um, we thank you for Jesus Christ by whom this care is possible and salvation is possible And we pray now, Father, that you would uh, meet us in this place. Through your word, in your name we pray. Amen. So, we have just transversed our way through maybe the most difficult chapter in all the Bible, at least the most controversial, that's Revelation 13, where we hear about the beast and um, the antichrist and the red dragon. And remember, that was part of the sixth trumpet where God's judgments are being poured out on the earth. Um, But specifically, um, Satan's schemes against the church and how the, the, the workings of Satan and his minions to persecute the church are real. They are certainly under the sovereign care of God. But they are nonetheless real. They are nonetheless um, relevant for every generation. As we think about um, um, a culture, a world that does not want to hear the truth of the word of Christ, they don't want to hear it because, it like the same reason we don't want to hear it because it points out the truth and the darkness of our hearts. And so, thir- chapter 13 was a was a was kind of a grim chapter. But here in chapter 14, before John turns to the seventh trumpet. He, he gives this little parathetical thought, and he, he wants to remind us of something. He wants to remind the readers of something. He wants to remind the church of something. And that's in the midst of there being opposition and pushback and persecution and the sufferings that the church will walk through in every age. There stands behind even Satan and his schemes, a sovereign God, who is doing a specific work in and for his people and he's in fact doing the most important work he is giving them the reassurance they have that again as Luther has often said or as often quoted him the body they may kill but the truth abideth still and that that our eternal soul the most important aspect of who we are is safe and assured in Christ. And so here the scene opens in Revelation 14, where John's on Mount Zion with Jesus and in with him the hundred and forty-four thousand. And again, I think this is a pretty clear reference to the fact that this is the heavenly city, this is the new Jerusalem, that Jesus Christ has come. Um, heaven has met earth. I think this is the 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 scene of the final coming and judgment of Jesus Christ. And remember, the 144,000 are are not a select few. They aren't, I don't think they're like a future remnant of ethnic Israel. I don't think that they're, like the Jehovah Witnesses says, a, a select 144, and who knows if you're a part of them or not. But this is symbolic of all of God's people for all of history in the Old and New Covenants. Remember, we talked about this in an earlier chapter, the 12... Um, apostles representing the new covenant believers the 12 tribes of Israel representing the old covenant um, that's 144 when you multiply them together and then as if to give added emphasis times a thousand it's just it's meant to come to symbolize fullness and so here at the end of time all of God's people are gathered around him in the New Jerusalem and the reason that they are there okay is because God has preserved them God has has sealed them and the way that this is marked out here look in verse 1 and 2 it says he had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads and again this is to contrast the mark of the beast or the mark of satan which is really symbolic metaphorical for the idea that people who belong to the beast or belong to satan um, they come under the the wrath and the judgment of satan Um, but for the people of god we have the mark of god and again not a literal mark on our forehead um, but this is in fact the holy spirit which seals our hearts and so he's telling them that even while you were being persecuted and being pushed back against and suffering in your life by virtue of the fact that you belong to me that your that my name was on your hearts and that my that my name was written across your foreheads I knew who was mine I was not going to lose any of them and that'll be just such an amazing joyous comforting celebration when when God's people when we come before him on that day and realize we are safe at last um, and we are in the middle of a joyous day that is never going to end and and the way this is 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 depicted as these angels playing their, well not angels, it just says there's there's a great company, a voice from heaven, and the voice I heard was like, this, was like the sound of harpists playing on their harp. So remember, um, like King David playing the harp for Saul, um, this was an instrument of great beauty and majesty and celebration and sweetness and to be played in the midst of royalty. Remember one time Susan and I were at a Marriage retreat together, and on one of the last nights of the celebration of this retreat, uh, they brought they brought in a young man, and I kid you not, he was King David incarnate. He had the long flowing hair, and he was a good looking, strapping young Christian man, and he sat there and played the harp for us. It was like sublime, and and it's this is this is the note here that this is a a sweetness this is a this is a coronation this is a setting apart of the of god's people who struggled for so long but yet now stand on the other side and it says that they were singing a song only the redeemed could understand right and so this idea is that in a marriage there's there's certain conversation certain kind of talk that is unique and special and intimate between a husband and wife only the two of them can understand what they're saying it's even a glance it's even a, a nod a phrase a, a history drawn from and and this is the idea here that 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 God is singing a song it's it's and it's one meant to be understood and heard by his bride and his bride alone and and the way that he describes this okay let's, let's it's interesting. These hundred and forty-four thousand who've been redeemed. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, understand something that this idea of the pure spotless bride of Christ, who's pure, who's set aside for her husband, Jesus Christ, um, who has not um given her heart away, okay, to another. And we and, and this is I think this echoes for us when we think about the Ten Commandments. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. But what's the last commandment? Okay? You shall not covet, okay? And coveting is obviously desiring anything that doesn't belong to us or has not been given to us. And ultimately, covetousness is a disgruntledness with the goodness of God. It's a questioning of God's grace. That he hasn't given us all that we need. So you can see how those two commandments bracket the Ten Commandments, have no other gods, find your contentment only in God. Now, isn't it interesting, okay, that John, the writer of Revelation, ends his book, okay, of 1 John by by this kind of this this it seems like a like an outlier, just a a non sequitur, and he, he gives them all these exhortations about love and then he exhorts them, little children do not follow idols do not love idols put away your idols and it's like hmm that's interesting how what, what is he saying there well he's saying that that god has designed us and our souls to be happy in him and him alone and when we look to other things other gods other idols to fill that place it's we're always going to be disappointed it's always going to let us down but on that day okay we will find our souls satisfied fully in Him, which means the things that we that we ought to want the most are the things that we're going to actually want the most, which is Him. We are going to be pure, undefiled, set apart, blameless for an undistracted, unhindered um, communion and sweet union with Christ the Lamb. And so it's the beautiful picture that John presents here. And so what does this mean for us today? It means that this side of heaven, we need to know that there's nothing in this world that will ultimately satisfy. That, that, that whatever that trip, that vacation, that game, that achievement, that job, that pay, um, our children, our marriage, whatever, all of it, um, this side of heaven is ultimately destined to not last, right? The only thing that lasts are people, souls, and the word of God. But yet, our souls in this life find satisfaction, they find joy as they come closer to this heavenly reality where we are satisfied in Jesus and Jesus alone. And, and so we are being pushed towards that, I think in this text, for the here and now. How are we running after Christ? How are we pursuing Christ? How are we finding our souls satisfied in him, knowing that we can do this? because we are sealed we are redeemed we have the name of god on our forehead Um, we have had his seal the holy spirit placed upon our hearts it's a down payment it's reminding us of the glorious day that is to come and i think this is a pertinent message right for the readers the seven churches in revelation after they'd heard about the carnage and the destruction and the the, the travails of this life and how Satan stands behind the persecution of the church they need to be reminded but there is a greater truth a greater reality spoken over the people of God and that's by the lamb who has sealed them with his blood it's a short, short little passage today um, 14 1 through 5 we're gonna we're gonna um, wrap up chapter 14 tomorrow um, be our last devotional of the week same time same station I hope you're there to join us let me pray Lord we just want to really just meditate on this word for us this morning that you've spoken a sweet word over us you've drawn us to yourself that while we experientially um, are not pure we're not spotless we are defiled we have given our hearts to others and other lovers but you have cleansed us you've wiped us you've made us clean And now you make our souls satisfied in you and you've sealed us for the day of redemption. And we thank you for that. Let us live in light of that reality today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.